So Zexer video here from Boston Speaks Up, which it says up here, Boston Speaks Up. Uh, thanks, Devin from underscore VC, head of marketing. Uh, I'm here with Michael Scott, the founder, co-founder of underscore VC. Michael, thanks for welcoming welcoming me into your office. Yeah, on the contrary, glad you could join us. Yeah, appreciate it. It's a nice little studio setup we have here. Yeah, it's fun. It's a good way to, for us to actually invite people in and let them have their voice. Yeah, it's great. There's uh, plenty of opportunities to highlight more and more voices in the Boston innovation community. So there's we have plenty of alignment there right off the bat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm excited to share um, some of the things you're up to today with Underscore. Having grown up in Boston, cut my teeth in Cambridge Innovation Center back when One Broadway was really growing and coming to life. Uh, back in the late 2000s and sort of being around when, you know, Boston 01.0 yep. um, and kind of coming back you know, 10 years later, a father, a husband and sort of like, congratulations. thank you very much. Um, I've been, um, it struck me that there was a lack of s- storytelling and a seeming lack of community in Boston and what I've I've gravitated toward underscore VC, because in my opinion, you're nurturing as big, if not the biggest community in in Boston's innovation community, Mm -hmm. uh, which has been confirmed with many friends of the industry I respect. And also from attending the core summit a few weeks back, which thank you for having me. Uh Um, So I really do want to unpack what you're doing now and but before we do that, I would yeah. love to kind of go back in time and find out and find out and share with the Boston community how you got here. Sure. Um, so where where did you grow up? So I grew up in England in a place called Wiltshire, which was dark and dingy and rainy. <laughs> so it was a, one of those places you wanted to get out of fast. Uh-huh. And then uh, latterly in London, which was a great, I mean, it's still a phenomenal city. And then uh, pretty quickly gravitated towards coming to the States because I'm such a technology-driven person. So this is obviously the center of the universe for that. It's changing, of course, it's becoming more global, but I still think most of the big companies get uh, based in the US. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about, double-click on your childhood first. You started your first company as a teenager. Yeah. And were you still at home? Were you in London at that point? Where were you and what was that company? Uh, So... Ironically, I wasn't really formally allowed to start a company. I think the age that I was doing stuff, but I would go up to a place that actually was selling programmable calculators. That was sort of the first version of PCs before there were PCs, mm-hmm. and I would just write software for people that were coming in to buy them. In fact, it turns out people weren't buying the calculators; they were buying something that they wanted to do with them. So right. people would walk in and say, for example, a head of a, a global rubber corporation came in and said, "You know, I have tremendous trouble." with the pricing that we do because around the world, the currency fluctuations can cost us a fortune. Could you write me a program that would manage currency arbitrage for me? Another person would come in and say, um, you know, I'm I'm a stockbroker and it's really hard to do the yield to maturity calculation for bonds across a portfolio and and project things like that. I had no idea what that meant, but (laughs) I learned about it, programmed it, did the portfolio analysis for him. Uh, another one was shipping optimization. I, I did all these things, including yeah. some things that were really quite strenuous t- to figure out, such as helping you know stores keep their inventory and do their order management and figure out the basics of commerce. But what, the, what that was was a phenomenal yeah, education, effectively, into a lot of the different areas of you know sort of the industrial, commercial, and you know financial world. And so, um, 
that's that's where I cut my teeth. Interesting. And and so were you self-taught? Were you like, yeah? You would yeah. that yeah. someone would come to you with a challenge and you had a track record for solving it, and then you would go and figure out number one, what is it that they're looking for, and then number two, yeah. what languages do I need to? Uh, work in to, to solve these problems? It sounds like it's very impressive, but it isn't because there weren't 10 languages to right. learn in those days. That, you know, whatever pro- program you were, whatever um, you know, um, calculator or computer you were selling was basically what you had to program in. So there weren't 10 choices. Got it. Um, I mean, this is a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and so you know, the really key thing was not the programming. It was actually understanding that problem. And that yeah. taught me a lot. Yeah. Because if you're solving a real problem for somebody, then you're creating value. Sure. And I always started with people telling me their problem. Start with the pain. Yep, exactly. Which is which has been a great lesson in life. Yeah. I hear that a lot in, in business with the folks we work with. The focus on pain, gain, claim. Yeah. Try to yeah. keep things simple at a top line because you're about to get really messy if you have a nice yeah. uh, technical product. Um, so in London, before before we get over to the States, I saw in your bio you worked with the on uh, was it the online publishing association the software or software publishing, publishing association. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, when I was looking that up, that up on Wikipedia, yeah. I noticed there was like entertainment, like basically softwares across industries. Yeah. Um, and you were executive chairman at one point. So I'm, I'm pretty high, pretty fancy, like executive it level role. Fancy, but again, it was a nonprofit. The, the goal was, in a broad sense, representing the software industry. And okay. the biggest issue that we had in those days was there was packaged software and it used to get pirated. Okay. And so we spent a lot of time with uh, another agency actually called the Federation Against Software Theft, which was a big deal at the time, yeah. to make sure that people valued software mm-hmm. and that we represented the industry well and they understood why we valued it. Yeah. Even though people would just copy it easily, you know, that millions of people's yeah. uh, lives were actually you know, behind creating the software and that it was valued therefore and it wasn't just, you know, right. Made, but uh, yeah, no, it was fun. It was I, you know, I enjoyed representing the industry. What year was that roughly? In the 80s. What's interesting is it was what's old is new. Yeah. You know, the privacy was a focus. Sure. Right. <laughs> we can make, you can make the argument that you could, you know, at, at any technology company you're building right now, you should almost have like a privacy first sort of, um, mentality, yeah. mission mentality and just the idea of an industry consortium yeah. um, which I think is not that it's ever gone away but I think there's been plenty that have been had a lot of a lot of air maybe a lot of a lot of tell but not so much show yeah. um, but it seems to have been credited with with um, being one of the more prominent and um, successful industry consortiums and so when you fast forward to the type of role that you're in today, underscore, I imagine there's probably lessons that you have from those early days that you're applying to this unique model that you have at underscore, which we can get in a little later. But just, I, I wanted to double click on that because it sure. personally uh, fascinated me. So um, sort of you were, you decided uh, to move to the States, mm-hmm. as you said, sort of innovation hotbed, and if you will. Um, what, were there certain... Uh, mentors or in like what were your influences back across the pond that yeah. sort of helped to drive you to the states like who are you whose counsel did you seek at that time in your life it's really interesting i i try to answer this question as honestly as i can whenever anybody asks me i didn't have any specific one mentor um i felt like i learned from everybody 
Mm-hmm. And to this day, I still try to think that way. I mean, like, I feel like I can learn from the next student I go and meet, mm-hmm. um, or I can learn from, you know, the CEO of the largest company I meet. Mm-hmm. The really important point, though, is that I really try to respect everybody has a viewpoint, and they have it for a reason, which is they've got some background that's, you know, helped them arrive at that viewpoint. Um, but I'll say very obviously that um, actually my father was a huge influence. You know, he was uh, orphaned himself, and so he kind of made his own way in life. Mm-hmm. He was a tremendous entrepreneur. And, you know, I went home every night to basically him doing his cash flows and figuring out his inventory and, you know, running his business yeah. as an engineer. And um, it was very influential. You know, you don't realize it at the time. Right. And he was also a tremendous visionary. I mean, I would have never been in the computer industry if it wasn't for him. Yeah. I think he, long before anybody else was talking about software or anything else, he was using what were then punch boards to program machine tools to make parts. And then they turned into, you know, numerical controls and yeah. then, you know, tape and software and so forth that did it. So I watched that through his eyes and he said, this is the future. It's not the machine tools. Those are mm-hmm. going to be commoditized, but yeah. the things that can control them, that's very powerful. Interesting. So suffice to say your, your father was probably the one to put the first calculator in your hands. Yeah, he yeah. was. And he challenged me to, to program it. <laughs> Otherwise I wasn't going to keep it. Amazing. Uh, so that was a fun story too. But uh, anyway, he, you know, he was very influential. Uh, What's the story? So, uh, long story short yeah. was, you know, he said, look, if you can program this to do, Count up to 10, I think it was, or something okay. very basic. Mm-hmm. Before the morning, you can keep it. It only okay. had nine registers, nice. so you, you basically had to trick it. Yeah. But I didn't realize that. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, that sounds incredibly easy. Let me do that. And then, of course, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into, and I had to learn something new and stayed up all night, figured yeah. it out, but realized there was a trick. And then that was it. I was hooked. What a clever challenge. I, and we've had a couple of the sort of coding camps in Boston on the podcast, like Brazilian coders. Yeah was on and uh, David Dalmara Santiez and we're talking about some of the programs like our daughter's two and a half it's a little early but some of the games and, and programs that are available now to, yeah. to children is um, it's exciting also I worry sometimes if it's like all one big social experiment yeah. um, but it's amazing to see how how, how we've come and, and sort of I think what will become the exception will be not putting devices in the hands of children that challenge them to learn and, and sort of like subconsciously teach them about zeros and ones. Yeah. Um, so interesting times. Well, uh, interesting yeah. about it is that at that time there weren't calculators at schools, for example, right. They were still using slide rules. So I'm really, yeah. so it was really based on household to household. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you were extremely lucky if you got to go anywhere near a computer, but they still had right. computer rooms that you had to get, get time from. And so, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, cause then as a, you know, as a, as a child in the like late eighties and into the nineties, I mean, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a computer. Yeah. Didn't have a computer. I remember getting a computer, you know, going into high school. It was a little, a little of the later side, but I've talked to my wife about this and yeah, she never had a computer and she grew up in Lawrence mass and they were signed up in a program. And once a week, my mother-in-law would take my wife and her two siblings to Lawrence public library to just right. interact with a computer. Right. Right. Um, that's, that's, yeah, Only a couple decades ago. Yeah, it's not long ago. <laughs> not long ago. Uh, so did you come straight to Boston? Yes, actually, as it turns out. Uh, this was, we weren't intending to. We were intending to go to the West Coast, but through a series of yeah. of uh, what you could call serendipitous steps. Sure. The people that decided to back us were some great names, companies like, well, venture funds like Greylock um, that were headquartered here. So we ended up being based here. Yeah. And what was the venture you were working on? At that, time. At that time, we were doing the first desktop CAD CAM system, and this was my brother and myself. Yes. And so we had a lot of fun working together, actually. 
and it was um, it was revolutionary in its time. Like everything you know that happens in this industry, there was some 10x or 100x price performance advantage we had. Sure. By being the first desktop computer at the time, and this was before PCs, when all computer design was being done on mainframes and mini computers, we had a massive advantage. Yeah. Um, and it was you know very obvious. It was like not just easier, but a lot faster, and of course price performance was you know orders of magnitude better. Yeah. So it was very exciting, and people were you know thinking we were going to take over the world. What we learned, which was important, is um, first of all, was, by the way, one of the greatest learnings for me was in this failure rather than the success. Because yeah. even though we were very very successful for a long time and bootstrapped without any venture funding, and um, you know very profitably so, when we came to the states, there was a little company called AutoCAD that had actually done the PC version of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. I'm simplifying things. But uh, ours was based on Hewlett Packard workstations, which were closed architectures and you know unique to HP. Mm -hmm. Very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. They had the first 32-bit computer in the world. And uh, so we had a lot of advantage. But when the PC came out, it was open architecture and with a completely different distribution channel. It wasn't sold directly. It was sold through dealers. And so AutoCAD had not only an architectural advantage, but also a go-to-market advantage on us. Mm -hmm. And they basically were cleaning up blocks mm -hmm. from day one. And it took us a long time to, to effectively take an old architecture and rewrite it to a new architecture. It's like we had our own innovative dilemma going on. And it was very hard. So, so from success to failure very quickly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, oftentimes you learn much more from the failures than, than successes. Um, and there can be a lot of false positives in successes. Uh, Double click on that for a moment. Was the let what was the lesson there? Was the lesson there that don't build? Is it almost like a in the modern day? Is that the equivalent of don't build a company completely um, uh, tethered to the rails of Facebook or or, or some platform um, because you need to be open enough to execute and move nimbly through the ebbs and flows of what hardware platforms are adopted by consumers um, but how would you sum up the like what was that big lesson what you just said would be a good example of something that could be drawn out of it okay which is always yeah. try to be nimble enough to not be dependent on something but right i'll be more honest about what we really learned what we learned was not to assume anything you get success begets success to, up to a point and um you have to be very careful you don't become complacent in your success sure so I assume nothing for me is, is the starting point, which is like when I get up in the morning, I assume that nothing that was making, you know, either uh, our business takeover or our success or, you know, the profits or whatever that we were enjoying uh, is going to be perpetuated the following day. Mm -hmm. So read the news and assume that something's just about to change everything. Sure. And, yeah. uh, and that's a good mentality because it keeps you humble. And it also keeps you curious and on your toes <laughs> and on your toes too. Yeah. And then you, then you, you know, remember to stay nimble and all those other sure. things. But I would say there was one other lesson too, which was super important, which we've sort of addressed, which is um, actually, you know, during all the success, I remember my father tapping us on the shoulder and saying, you guys know nothing. And we were like, what do you mean? We know nothing. He's like, you've just been so successful. You really haven't learned anything. And at that time, I think we were a 20, whatever it was, $3 million business. This is a long time ago. So this, these numbers sound tiny, but we had, you know, 22% pre-tax profit or whatever it was. So we were making a lot of money. And um, I thought he was really, really annoying when he said that. It's like, you know, why would a father say that to a son? But he was right. Because through all that success, we hadn't experienced all the challenges that come with being, you know, 
for example, in a high, hyper-competitive market or with changing dynamics or with different uh, strategies that are needed for go-to-market, et cetera. And through going through all of the failure, we realized what we needed to learn. Being battle-tested. Being battle-tested and yeah. being brought to our knees and right. being forced to recognize. And fight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I consider that to be an incredible gift that we got because, you know, I was 21 at the time. Wow. And um, what an incredible lesson to have had by the age of 21. Yeah. Uh, or maybe I was 22 by the time it finished. But the point is, that set me up for success. Mm-hmm. That failure mm-hmm. set me up for success because I never approached anything the same way again. Yeah. I was always open-minded and always tried to be humble about it. Right. I Interesting. Well, what was it like to, to start a business with your brother? Uh, incredible fun. Yeah. We both <laughs> joke about it to this day. We were, we were actually camping recently and we were just, you know, bawling our heads off. You were camping? Myself. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> we went hiking in the, in the Dolomites in Italy and, uh, you know, it's, we were freezing cold and couldn't sleep, so we got up in the middle of the night and just wandered around, took photographs in the dark uh, of the stars and stuff. But, you know, we, we were joking back to what were some of the most fun we'd had in our lives. And, sure. And that was certainly one of the periods. One of those periods? Yeah. yeah. Who's older? He is. He yeah. is. He's nice. older, wiser, all the other good things. Awesome. Yeah. He's, wow. a great, he's a great older brother. What fun to, to yeah. start something with your brother. So you spent a couple, uh, better part of a couple decades building companies, being on the sort of higher yeah. entrepreneur side of things. Yeah. Uh, can you sort of take us through some of those key milestones and businesses that you built um, as an entrepreneur? Sure. Um, let me just use one because it's difficult sure. to go through all of them. But, yeah. um, you know, Symantec was a business that was about a 20 to $30 million business. I can't remember how big it was, but it was tiny. But again, in relative terms, it was big in the PC industry. And um, I was very attracted to bringing them as a business into Europe. And so I went and effectively negotiated to buy the rights to Symantec, which is a strange thing to do, uh-huh. to set up Symantec in the UK okay. and to start bringing the business, uh, the products to market. The hard part was that they'd actually been distributed in the UK uh, and in Europe through some of these, they were box software distributors and retailers and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't succeeding. That's why I went and pitched them and said, look, you just got bad representation. You need to you know, start from scratch again. And I told them I didn't think they could do it, you know, if they just gave a distributor the, the rights to the products. They really needed to be Symantec in the UK, representing themselves with the right kind of quality of service and support and everything else. It took a lot of work to do that because effectively it was a restart. Yeah. Like we had to get rid of all the reputation of why yeah. they weren't great products or they weren't well supported or they didn't meet the UK requirements, etc. And that was a hell of a lesson too, because, you know, you can, again, I was trying to yeah. remember my own advice. Yeah. Don't assume anything. Yeah. In other words, don't assume that just because they're a successful brand in the US, yeah. that they're going to translate to Europe. They were still a small brand even in the US. Yeah. But what was great about it was I really, really learned the importance of hiring great people. Sure. Uh, and some of that original team that we hired, they're, they're still incredibly good friends. Um, they've gone on to do amazing things. They've you know run, started, founded all sorts of incredible businesses. And I'm really honored to have worked with those people. Yeah. Um, and they were uh, the second major lesson in my life, which is, look, it doesn't matter what product you've got yeah. or you know, what market opportunity you've got, unless you hire the right people who can actually you know, own it and build it, you're really not going to get anywhere. And uh, I was lucky enough to attract two people um, to run that business because I effectively was, was doing this as a, a bigger picture business, um, which is as a holding company to invest a series of software products to bring to Europe. Yeah. Called European Software Publishing. And so I had to effectively replace myself. I'd start the business, 
mm-hmm. and then hire my replacement, and then move on and find the next one. Sure. Um, and the two people, the original guy that I found wanted to follow me and do the next one. Right. So I had to find yet another one. Yeah. Uh, we found another great guy, a guy called Jeremy Brown, who did a, did a terrific job too. So Yusuf was the first one. Jeremy was the second one. And that, that was a, a reminder to me of, of what I still live by this day, which is look, focus on people first yeah. and establish a basis to you know, invest in them and everything else will follow. But if you get it wrong, which I did in one of the other businesses, mm-hmm. and I won't mention his name, but I had a very, very successful track record with this gentleman. I mean, he'd run one of the biggest PC software businesses in Europe. Mm-hmm. So he was you know, famous for it. Uh, and when I recruited him, I would say he was all excited about, you know, doing it again, and working on this next opportunity. But he'd forgotten what it took to do it again. Yeah. And he didn't want to get his hands dirty. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to look out for that. Don't be enamored with people's titles or, you know, what their yeah. background is. Be in the moment and, and read where they are right now and what their motivation is. Yeah. And ensure it's really pure and authentic. Yeah. But if you can get that right, it's unbelievably powerful. That's actually interesting without going far into it. The, um, the group that I work with, we oftentimes help um, vet or we have folks in our network will help sort of insert in like chief marketing and sale, more marketing sales and BD roles at companies. And there's, I can recall someone who was amazing in a previous role that we had recommended and they came in and they sort of like, they were at a different point in their life yeah. personally. Yeah. And so they had like all the enthusiasm they once had was gone. Yeah. And we quickly realized a few months in, oh boy, this person actually may not be yeah. the best person in this role right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hunger's very yeah. important. Yeah. So, you know, think, you know, people, you know, it's good to have a beat on the human, con- you know, the human condition and, and, and people. Yeah. Always. One other, you know, one thing you mentioned about sort of Symantec going into to Europe, it's it, it, it also being a branding guy. Like I can't help but think of the words like brand dilution and just the idea of, well, it's one thing to, you have to rethink how a brand resonates with another market. Like the entertainment industry does this. You'll come up with a movie you know, it says you make the movie may be called something and oftentimes the movie, even in an English speaking country like Australia, you know, if it's, it was like the perfect catch, yeah. I think was like named, um, you know, something different in Australia yeah. because it was, depends on who's, you know, who's going to get it and whatnot. But the point being, yes, there's certainly, how is this going to resonate in the market? But when you go with like a reseller or distributor sort of, you know, agreements with folks, there's a lot of, um, vulnerability to brand dilution okay. and, and uh, I imagine that you had a lot of, because you weren't starting from scratch, you probably had a lot of um, brand um, improvement and, and sort of fixing that you needed to do in, yeah. in those moments. So you probably got a good crash course in like more of the branding and marketing stuff, which is like a, added a whole nother lane of, of, of uh, battle-tested experience. Yeah. And it was also, I mean, just to make sure you know, none of these things are as easy as they sound. So, right. um, you know, there were, there were times where we would price the product differently. Yeah. We had the right to do that, um, but it would infuriate the parent company. And they'd yeah. be like, how can you possibly price it at that when we think it's worth this? Yeah. So I'll give you an example that was very, very contentious. So today it wouldn't be, but you know, it was back then. We introduced our antivirus product for the Macintosh, and it was a huge hit. Okay. Uh, so it was you know, number one. There was no competition for it. When the PC viruses started to hit, we produced a product that was honestly just crap. It just didn't catch the viruses. And there was little companies like Dr. Solomon in the UK that were the tenth our size that were doing a better job than us. And so we had our two choices, which is, okay, we'll play by their rules and we'll lose, um, or we're going to change the rules. And so we decided to change the rules. We yeah. gave the software away and started to charge a subscription 
for the virus definition. So we would always be ahead of everybody by really focusing on you know being ahead of the actually important part, which is not the scanner, that's like a commodity, yeah. but the uh, research associated with getting to a virus signature before anybody else did. Yeah. That really paid off. But in the meantime, our parent company was like, what are you doing giving our product away? <laughs> um, yeah. It turned out to be a game changer. To this day, um, Symantec's business, if you look back, historically had a huge inflection point when it figured out how to become a subscription business. Yeah. Of course, we now take subscription and SaaS as sort of something for granted, but it yeah. was not that way. Yeah. You know, people were buying packaged software in those days. Interesting. So, you cl- so that was a great um, example of what you're doing on the entrepreneurial side. What was it that started to... What drove you um, to the investment side and to the VC side? Yeah. And, you know, that, that was, I think, like, you know, 20 years or so into your career. Yeah. Was that a difficult decision? Was it, was it a natural progression? So, uh, first of all, the truth on both sides of this is fascinating, neither of which could I have predicted. So, truthfully, I wasn't thinking about it. Uh, all the VCs who backed me, and these are phenomenal VCs, these are people like Axel, and and so um, they all basically said, look, you should become a VC. You're going to make a great VC. You, you, you understand the entrepreneurial process. You've done it many times. You know, entrepreneurs will relate to everything you've, you've done, and your successes and failures will actually help other entrepreneurs. So I, I will say that I was basically persuaded to do it rather than really thought it through. Mm-hmm. Um, I did make one conscious decision in the middle of it, which was, okay, look, if I go start another company, I could go create another business and that would be great fun. It'd be wonderful. We could have a huge success, but that would be one more business. If I become a VC, I can help many entrepreneurs start many businesses and hopefully have a portfolio of companies that really make a difference. And that sold it to me. I, I'm sold it to myself, if mm-hmm. you will. That was the decision that uh, swayed me to say, okay, I'm going to go and do venture. Now, here's the other side of the truth. I hated it the first two years. Interesting. And I'm not going to pick on, you know, where I went. That's the reason. I actually hated venture. Uh, What were the elements that you hated? Well, a lot of things. Uh, But to pick on the most important... Where do you start? Yeah, well, there are a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. Some of which led to what we're doing at Underscore. Great, yeah. Um, You know, one is I really felt like it was a, a very misaligned business. It was very much about the LPs as customers. So mm-hmm. we'd raise money from an institution. You would treat them as your customer. Everything would be about how do you report to them about how you're doing and how much money you're going to make for them. And the entrepreneur was second to that. The se- yeah. Totally second, yeah. which to me was absolutely bass backwards. Sure, yeah. You know, how on earth are you going to make any money unless you help the entrepreneur be successful? So right. to me, that was just wrong. Right. Um, second thing I hated was more personal, which is honestly, as a founder, CEO, or, you know, an entrepreneur, I got up every day and I knew what I needed to do to make a difference. And if I did it well, I could see the difference I made. And most of the time I could measure it too, whether that was daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly, whatever it was, it was there. In this business, you don't know if you're only good for 10 years. And that is a long time. And it only dawns on you after you've become involved in these businesses that first of all, they're not your businesses. Mm-hmm. And I had no problem, by the way, making the switch to being an influencer. That's not the problem. But what I realized was, you know, some people call it being a kingmaker versus king. That's actually fun, but you cannot feel your impact or measure your success for long, long, long periods of time. Now, if they go wrong, you obviously quickly, you know, see it. But even then, you know, did you make it go wrong or was that the entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, Likewise, if it's successful, 
you know, you might be sort of quote unquote associated with the success, but did you really have anything to do with it? Is it because less touch points, like less, well, less active? The entrepreneurs own it. Yeah. In the end, they are getting up every day, you know, with the, all the blood, sweat, and tears to go build a business. And you have to respect that. Sure. And if they do it right, and they're good entrepreneurs, you really don't have much to do. And it's the irony of our business is that when you back great entrepreneurs or you build great teams, you have very little to do. Yeah. Um, and when you get it wrong and you put the wrong people in the wrong places or you hire the wrong people, you know, you can be very busy sorting out the mess all the time. So it's a very interesting business. It's, it's antithetical in lots of different ways. So that's interesting because I'm slightly surprised by that insight only if, because what, like, let's talk a little bit about how that informed the underscore model so that can, I and, and you know, listeners and, and viewers for our first video yeah. uh, can understand what does that mean vis-a-vis the community and the alignment that you're creating on the, on the so you're basically, if you're a good VC, as yeah. I just heard you say, you identify the right founders, founding team that have a high likelihood to be able to run their business every day on their own. Yeah. So why do they need a community? Yep. And why is it, why is this, um, in my opinion, very innovative model of sort of like aligning, um, you know, layers of a community at different times against a, a VC investment, something that underscore is doing and, and you're seeing is um, bringing value and helping promote success for the business. Um, but I'm curious, like, well, I want to dig into that. How does that fit in vis-a-vis your insight on, well, if we're really doing our job and we're, and we're picking the right companies, they don't need us that much. Yeah. 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 So let's put those two dots and connect them. So first of all, starting a business yeah, at the you know earliest stage is often guy or a gal an idea. Hopefully yeah. it's more than that, it's a couple of founders, et cetera. But at that point, they have a lot of things to do. And one of the hardest is, you know, find either their co-founders or their early stage team, et cetera. So you can help at that stage, mm-hmm. um, but they often don't know what they need. And I'll be honest. I mean, I didn't know what I needed when I was starting out, for example, and you learn it as you understand what you're going to need to respond to the market opportunity that you're addressing. So uh, I would say that if you look at the first principle of we want to be in alignment, mm-hmm. we're trying to help the entrepreneur figure that out. Mm-hmm. And as they figure it out, they need different people at each stage and in all the different functions that they might get involved in and specific to their domain. So the reason I know that is because the first thing I did before even starting underscore was with my co-founders, we did a listening tour. Mm-hmm. And um, I personally spoke to, for example, over 300 entrepreneurs and founders in that period of about a year. And I heard consistently the number one thing they wanted to help with was talent. And it's still true today. And it's not talent as in find me one person right, right person. now. It is as I build this business over the typically seven to 10 yeah. years, every stage I'm going to need different talents in different functions that specifically understand my domain. So we started thinking about from day one, how would we build what we call our core community of talent that would be organized in the stage function and domain um, ways that could help them at each step of the journey. That was challenge, uh, challenge number one. Mm-hmm. I was excited by doing that by the way, because I've, invested a lot in open source and I've seen how communities can grow yeah. when people are focused on a problem. One question on that sure. is part of the talent to like knowing, so it's not just, it's not like you're like a talent, like specific talent, like 
headhunting, sourcing, you know, a, a, um, solution. I get that. It, but is, is, is part of it nuanced to like, well, you need at, at this stage when you're at seed stage, you need these functions to be very, you know, clean and, and well executed. Um, some of which you need people full time for, and some of which you can actually, you're better served to bring in a consultant or someone part time yeah. to execute these functions. So it's part of it too, like full time versus part time, because that's something I see in yeah, early stage so. land. It's like, you know, don't go and hire a CMO yeah. at your angel stage and pay them several hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Like, that's not being le- like, you need to be lean and mean right now. Yeah. And there's certain things you want to like yeah, piece together. Is that kind of that sort of nuance? I think it's great that you raised that. I think you're spot on and and that nuance is super important, which is actually most of the time in the early stages, you don't have either the cash or the resources or most importantly, the need for full-time people in a lot of the roles. Right. And and you're going to evolve to understand what you do need. Sure. But having people who've been there before who can say exactly what you just said, which yeah. is, hey, before you hire a CMO, let's just figure out whether you need somebody who's you know, brand or demand gen or sales yeah. or whatever. And so that is a, a key part of this thing. And a lot of our core community members are part-time helping, not full-time right. engaging. Although, of course, a lot of them do get recruited yeah. in, into our companies, which is great too. So yes, it's nuanced. It's, you know, it varies greatly between what's needed and what people respond to. But it's a dual opt-in. So both yeah. sides you know, make that contract. We don't get in the middle of it, by the way. Right. We make the introductions. We make sure the chemistry is right. And we yeah. you know, facilitate. Obviously, we do the things that connect people. Yeah. Uh, so we solved that problem, but the second problem still remained, which is how do you get alignment? Because if I said to you, I want you to help with, you know, Sheila's project over here. Sure. You might really like Sheila and she might really like you, but you know, you at some point, if you keep helping her, it's like, what's in it for you? Yeah. And Sheila might enjoy it, but she knows she can't really keep asking you if, if you know, yeah. there's nothing to it for you. Sure. So the problem we fixed was when we invest in Sheila and we might write a check that's, you know, millions of dollars, we will reserve some of the funding. Yeah, I love it. And we will actually give you a profit interest effectively in her company mm-hmm. that's fully vested up front mm-hmm. for you to give your time. Mm-hmm. And that means that you're immediately, you've got skin in the game. Yep. Whatever you're doing, whatever your time you're giving her is going to be rewarded. You're co-aligned. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and joyously too, this is the other thing. Yeah. You're going to get paid out alongside the entrepreneur when her company you know, goes public or gets acquired or whatever happens. Long before the fund, for example, might itself be wrapped up. Because yeah. those fund cycles are long, they're, yeah. you know, they're typically 10 years themselves. So it's favorable terms for the advisors involved. It's also favorable to the entrepreneur because yeah. they're not giving more. It's not like you're saying, hey, here's a community. And then when you find someone who we've connected you with, maybe, you know, a couple times over a quarter over, you know, you know, H1 of 2019, you connect a couple times. Wow, this person can really help me weekly. And I'd love a more consultative hands-on role from them. Oh, now I have to go give them some equity yeah. or I have to go and pay them. There's this is, and so the structure is such that I'm curious if you could explain a little bit the structure as much as you're comfortable with, but also how you sold this structure to the, um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Cause I imagine that there was some difficult, it was a diff, it was difficult, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are three constituents involved <laughs> yeah. here. So you, you, you already understood two of them, but I'll just, you yeah. know, Go over them quickly. So for the entrepreneur, you're right, it's non-dilutive, cost them nothing. Right. So they love that. Right. 
cool. More value. Yeah. yeah. The cool partners, we call them. That's- you're earmarking more value you're going to bring in the form of advisors over time. That comes from underscore and not from the... Yeah. Uh, yeah. They also love that yeah. we're managing the relationships so that they, they don't have to fire or fire. And sometimes, you know, people are incredibly helpful for a period yeah. of time, but then they drift off. Mm-hmm. And so um, that works very well for the entrepreneurs. For the core partners, the members of the community that choose to do this, that become these core partners, they love it too because they're getting rewarded right away. They're getting appreciated and they're getting involved in a way that, again, doesn't isn't complicated for them. So yeah. We take care of all of that for them. Yeah. And they really do feel great about having that ownership, which is awesome. For the LPs, the reason... Actually, they didn't like it initially, by the way, because they're like, well, how can people being paid out before we get paid out? Yeah, yeah. But the answer to that was that we were willing, me willing, the G, meaning the GPs, the general partners of the fund, were willing to take uh, it out of our carry. Got so it. it's coming out of our pockets, not out of theirs. Mm-hmm. And the other obvious thing when I pointed out is that mm-hmm. if we get this right, which is proving to work really well, yeah, in the end, everybody's winning. We're sure. creating more value faster for the entrepreneur that in the end is going to return quicker to the LPs yeah. in a higher you know, value. Yeah. And so it's a, why wouldn't you do it? And over time, that yeah. compound, yeah, it's more more successful deals to be done. Everybody wins. Yeah. The, the thing that was difficult is that venture capital's rules have basically been set up 40 plus years ago and they've never changed. Mm-hmm. And so we had to go and reconstruct those rules and tell the LPs that we had rewritten the rules of VC in order to make this model work. Yeah. And it was a lot of work. It was probably, you know, 18 months of work on both the legal and the tax and everything else to get this all right. Mm-hmm. And then we've been refining it ever since. And I'll tell you, that was not something that many people would have taken on. I, I wanted to take it on, so did my partners, because yeah. I felt like this is changing venture for good. And mm-hmm. that I care deeply about. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you see other um, venture capital um, firms in Boston or elsewhere embracing um, a similar model? Yeah. In, in, which is good yeah yeah lots and lots and lots of people are copying it and i don't mean literally copying yeah. it because they'll do their own version of it. yeah it's some modification yeah yeah and is it um is it fair to say that the sort of the the banks if you will like they're there's they're they've reached um have we reached an inflection point where the openness to this sort of more modern innovative co-aligned investment um approach is is where is it, you know, is it 50-50? Is it, is it 20% accepted? Is it wildly accepted at this point? Or is it still a challenge for, uh, if, a, if a group wanted to put together uh, a VC fund right now, how difficult would it be? Do you feel like, do you feel like the, the barrier to entry for a co-aligned initiative, not that I'm starting one, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, no, maybe no, someone who's, it. Maybe, it may, if I could, I would, because yeah, I feel like it's really good for the community. Yeah. Um, but do you feel like, that this is the future of venture capital investing. This any iteration of this model, which is quite quite different um, than than those of the past, those that from rules that were written forty years ago. Uh, so, talk a little bit about that and sort of like the future state you see of VC. And let's just kind of we can talk about it all, but certainly related to Boston. And how do you feel? Um, that my and let me and let me add one thing to that because my assumption would be with the rapid change in innovation technology only getting more rapid it is it is of monumental importance that the investment uh, side of the innovation community uh, be incredibly innovative now but also nimble and open to innovation moving forward so it's not even like what we're talking about right now two three four five years ago uh, four or five years from now we'll likely need to change maybe not radically but certainly we'll need to iterate 
so speak about that a bit. Like, where are we now? Why does it benefit Boston? And where's the puck going? Yeah. So uh, you remember what we were talking about earlier, which is I assume nothing when I get up in the morning. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and that you could call a healthy paranoia or whatever you want to call it will persist. So I've often told my team and we talk about it frequently, you know, whether it's our quarterly offsites or, um, you know, reviews annually, whatever, that if we're not changing, we're going to die. And so, uh, I actually really value the fact that our team is constantly challenging our model and ourselves to listen hard to what we can do better. And, um, you know, every year we do something, which I think is pretty bold, but, you know, (laughs) I think everybody should do it. We actually send a survey out to all the people that, for example, we haven't funded just as much as the people we have funded to say, well, what did you think? What was your experience? What could we do better? What mm-hmm. do you think, for example, uh, we need to change? And a lot of people don't bother filling it in. Or if, if they've, for example, been turned down, they could be angry and frustrated, even right. though we try very hard to make sure they're not. Yeah. Um, but if you blow all, all the noise, you actually hear really good stuff. You hear useful feedback. So I fully assume that we will change. And here's my retrospective look back at how much we need to change. So when I first got into venture in 2002, whatever it was, there was no angel listing, kickstarting, incubating, accelerating, crowdsourcing, uh, you know, incubating, whatever you want to call it. All, that's all been innovation since. And yet in the firm I was in, nothing changed. Yeah. So it was very obvious to me that we needed to come up with a different approach. Right. Now, if I were to look forward five years and say, well, what do I think will have changed? I think one of the things I want to change and that we're set on changing is that through our core community, getting involved in helping build these ventures. And by the way, we let them invest too. That's a whole nother program we have for the core partners to become what we call syndicate partners with us. Um, They can invest and they can see how venture is done and it's totally transparent. We're blowing up the black box of VC. Mm -hmm. We're making it possible for anybody who's a current entrepreneur or founder, et cetera, to get involved and to learn our business. Mm -hmm. And I hope that, and actually I've, firmly believe we will actually inspire next generation of venture capitalists to come from the entrepreneurial community. Mm-hmm. So we operators who've experienced this and who've learned the power of bringing a community behind helping entrepreneurs. If we do that, we'll change venture for good and we'll change the process by which venture itself is built. That would be a huge win. That's great. And it, what's the, is the barrier for entry like investment wise lower? Much yeah, lower. It's zero. It's zero. Yeah. It's zero. And so you're allowing yeah. the community to say, come and participate. You can be an active participant to yeah. help in with the with whatever functions you and value you offer to to businesses. Yeah. Um, you essentially can act as a as an investor yeah. and learn it, and then hopefully over time, as you experience, um, experience it and either personally or through your your network have access to capital, like yeah. you also participate in that aspect of it too, but that's yep. almost a byproduct of, of the experience that's afforded by working with yep. Uh, yep. underscore in, in, in the, in the whole process. Exactly. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, um, you know, people don't recognize this, but, I, but we really do value it. People's time is much more valuable than their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah, it's finite. And yeah. so we pay a lot of attention to that. Now that said, when there are cases in point where, an entrepreneur wants to get involved and learn how to write checks. We actually have a program for that. It's called our core venture partner program. Mm-hmm. And um, there are about 12 or 13 of those now. And they're out in the community and they're writing checks on our behalf. Um, and effectively what they're doing is they're learning the business with money that's real to them. But alongside it, they're also writing their own checks. They don't have to, but a lot of them are. Yeah. And so again, it's all a great way to change the dynamics here. 
Because right now, if you want to become a venture capitalist, it's a short list and it's a very tough place to get into. And uh, fortunately, it's not all what white male dominated anymore, but it's still a tough place to get into. We're changing all that. Yeah. Like anybody can get into it. I love it. So let's talk about other things that need to change in Boston. Um, I think adjacent to all of this activity, we need to change. This is my belief and improve from a storytelling standpoint, from a media production. Here we are in this nice um, studio that underscore has invested in, in in your own space. Yeah. Boston speaks up in and of itself is, is sort of a, a it's it's been um, an, an experiment turned venture into sort of like profiling the the inspiring um, folks in the innovation community um, bringing to life met the many uh, voices that exist from many different uh, corners of, of Boston's innovation ecosystem I find it incredibly I found it incredibly difficult moving back from Los Angeles to understand who the players were mm-hmm. uh, I remember what Boston used to be yeah um, and I and I, I, I still appreciate what they do now and I'm, I'm graciously like a contributing editor uh, but there's only you know there's two full-time people contributing there where in the past there's been you know four or five six X that yeah. um, just so no and no one like no existing publication was the business journal or Scott Kersner and the group at the globe, they're not all going to fix this issue. Like the issue is there's so stick, you know, on, on the VC front, uh, Boston is, you know, number two in the country, VC per capita. And yet if you were to take then a second visual and try to show the amount of media produced in Silicon Valley, which is number one versus Boston, it was, it would be like Boston is like a little speck. And then the, the valley is just lit up with yeah. with production. You have, you know, Crunchbase News once a month. We'll do a little thing on Boston, and it's insane to me. It's like yeah. it's kind of it's mind boggling. Yeah, uh, I do understand. Yeah, yeah. I do understand the economics of publishing, and totally get why some of the existing legacy publishers, of which now you could call Bostono and American Business City Business Journals and Boston Business Journal, they're all legacy publishers. That I haven't seen too many new publishers in town. I understand the publishing economics aren't great. That's where I spend a lot of my time in the consulting world. It seems to me though, there's plenty of common interest in the innovation community. And certainly I would feel like amongst VCs or maybe um, from the New England Venture Capital Association level to throw some money into a pot and say, hey, we need like people on the bench, I call it, like Galen Moore, former Boston Business Journal editor who I had on the podcast. Dan Rowinski, who I had on the podcast, former Read Write mobile editor, Dennis Keohane from Pando Daily. I can keep going, but like it's TechCrunch, Pando, Read Write, business, Boston business reporters like that have been wildly um, uh, appreciated and and um, and read over the years are like on the bench yeah. right now, yeah. all like hustling and consulting and doing their thing. Is there not a way to? Um, is there not like we have all the pieces here and we have all these amazing things happening. Is there not a way to lift up through community, um, and through platform that seems that underscores building just to highlight just the many voices that are doing amazing things because doesn't that, that's also a great form of discovery and getting things done. Cause again, back to me coming back a year plus ago from LA and I promise I'll shut up soon. I really struggled to know who 
what people were doing. I was like going on LinkedIn. Yeah. I was reading their bios. Did they update their bios? I would, I would look like, you know, I, by the way, good job on the uh, 20 minute VC podcast. I Google someone's name plus podcast. Have they been on a podcast? Like, is there anywhere where there's been some media produced about them? So I can know like who's doing what. Yeah. Um, and so it just seems like a shame because it seems like such a value to the innovation community. If we could all consume like a layer of content beyond like static text yeah. online. Um, so that was like a lot, but then maybe it kind of held it back for a little while, but that's sort of the thing. That's one of the things I see as being a big problem and, and you kind of alluded to it, but huge opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, so can you speak to that, you know, that, you know, the more the opportunity and maybe what underscore is trying to do to participate in being, um, you know, a steward and, and, and producer and distributor of, of great content around the innovation community of Boston. Yeah. Well, first of all, I thought you described it very well. So I, Thank I, you. I, it's great to hear somebody passionate about it. And I think you're dead right. There's a huge opportunity here or problem if you want to look at it that way. Um, and so great, let's do something about it. And I'm a big believer of rather than talk, just do. So for us, that's meant, okay, get our community together and make sure that we spend time getting them in rooms that give them a chance to speak up. And a lot of times, obviously, what we're doing is producing our events that are roundtables or dinners or workshops, et cetera. Um, but as you saw, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll speak up loud and we'll organize a 600 person annual summit, bring in the very best people from yeah. around the world. We, we will do that and we'll keep doing that. And I think the way in which it will become self-sustaining is for the community itself to have the ability to get on that platform and get a voice and not have to spend a lot of time creating the reach for it. Mm -hmm. So that's two sides of that. We can do that from you know, encouraging the community, providing the, the platform, et cetera, but there has to be a voice. Yeah. So we'll initially provide it the way we're doing today. Yeah. If they come into our studio, they can do it any way we want. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll, that'll be on our website, but that's a tiny corner of the web. So right. we also need, of course, the, you know, the bloggers, the journalists, et cetera, to give them the amplification. Yeah. And, and that's where everything you said makes tons of sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, to give you a sense of how we're going to continue to invest in it, we have an open position right now for somebody who's going to be our content producer. Mm -hmm. Um, and their full-time job will be effectively working with the community to bring their voice to the marketplace, to share their experiences about what does it take to build a business or what domains are hot and why and what their experiences are that others can learn from and so forth. So great. we're very intent on doing that. That's great. Um, and as far as, um, so as far as that person's role, they'll sort of rove not just around it's not, it's like a, it's underscore VC role, but they'll speak to, will they speak to entrepreneurs outside of your portfolio? Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 And, and we across. Think about yeah. yeah. Uh, on a day to day basis yeah. as anything other than obviously our investments. And, and that's, they're incredibly important to us. That is the focus of what we do yeah. is to help those entrepreneurs be successful. But in order for them to be successful, they have to be in a, an ecosystem that's supportive of them. Yeah. So, you know, I've said this from day one, our goal is to raise as much of what we can in terms of the value of the community in Boston. And I have a very specific and, and audacious goal there. Mm -hmm. It's to get outside the box. So what I mean that. That's where I want to go next. Yeah. yeah. Talk to uh, me about how you feel about that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I, I want to give credit to my team here because it wasn't me who said this, but okay. we were sitting as a team, you know, talking about what do we really want to measure when we think about the success of, of our impact on Boston? And it will be this, which is that we will attract the best entrepreneurs from anywhere in the world to choose to start in Boston. Sure. Yeah. That's our goal. Yeah. And that's, that's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. Right now, yeah. you know, we, we can attract them even 
to our colleges and universities, but do we retain them? No. No. And in the type of people in, in sure, like you can attract first time entrepreneurs, folks out of college, but in reality, there's lots more entrepreneurs that you can attract that are you know, post graduates, like oh. wherever in the world. Um, so back to like the content producer that you're bringing on the idea of create of those out the outputs that that content producer puts together. There's value in those outputs that could syndicate to some of the more horizontally facing sure. global tech publications. Absolutely, um, that's actually a lot how our how our business works is helping take um, create editorial products underwritten by businesses. Yeah. And then going to like we do two things with VentureBeat right now. Yeah, M- more in verticals like we do a you know we do a gaming column every yeah. month. But I could totally see like a VentureBeat Boston column. Yeah, Can you imagine that like yeah. they don't have one. They should. They benefit from it. But what if they didn't even have to pay for it? Yeah, and you're a content producer or maybe a combination of them and and some Galen Moore types or whatever. But imagine like a like there's so so I think there's a lot of opportunities for for those who both invest in producing in Boston, but also the foresight to understand we can't just like communicate in a bubble that is Boston and going and partnering with innovation media publications outside of the city. It's way more to our advantage to broadcast those messages, not not, not on underscore, not on Boston, not on any Boston related site, but on like TechCrunch and VentureBeat and the next web. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have to take that offline, but I have many more ideas on that front. Um, Where is the puck going from an investment standpoint, at least for you guys? Like what recently have you been, what kind of businesses have you been vetting? Um, I I get the sense that there's, um, it seems to me there's more, startups and I, and you say this in Boston, it's like, of course, there's always a lot of startups, but I'll give you, I'll give an example of a, a quantifiable example that it seems there's more startups being pitched in Boston than ever. Yeah. Uh, Clem Casalot, yeah. managing director of tech stars, yeah. Boston. What up Clem? Uh, he was on the podcast a while back. I was texting with him last week. He's like, dude, I'm buried. He's like, there's going to have to be something I can do to, 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 to share insights on trends in Boston based on the fact that we're like, there were at least a thousand more applications than they've ever had for Techstars Boston. And he's like, it just seems like there, there is more, there are more people pitching amazing ideas than ever. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to give them all proper, um, you know, do due diligence properly on all yeah. of them. Um, so it just seems like there's a lot there and you, I'm sure, man, I know you must see a lot. Oh, yeah. So what are some of those trends that you're seeing and certainly things that you feel you're uniquely qualified to and, and have recently or are interested in, investing in maybe for listeners who are entrepreneurs. Um, but yeah, what do you, what are you noticing, you know, trend lines and where do you think are the right, um, types of businesses that will be long for the world that we're going to be in at least for the next five years, let's say. That's a whole podcast in itself. Right. The world is entering a different phase where instead of everything being very centralized and in the power of a few, we're going to have a very decentralized Web 3.0, if you will, yeah. um, where the resources are either, you know, distributed on the edge in devices or connected by people in the center and owned by the many in a network. Mm-hmm. And within that, the power is actually mostly not in the software even, but in the information that's being generated. Mm-hmm. So we've had this thesis since, you know, several years back, but 
call it trusted cloud intelligence. It's a, it's a big umbrella thesis. And um, what I would describe at the center of that is the intelligence word, which is that, that information is being generated on an unbelievable basis today. I mean, there are, there are so many trillions of data points that even while we've been sitting here, we've been generating. But yeah. it's, you know, they're obviously, you know, the pulse that, for example, is being monitored off my watch, or it's the words we're speaking that mm-hmm. are being captured. The, the point is that in the future, that data needs to be mined in a way that drives intelligence, because otherwise it's just noise. And the intelligence is going to drive new applications, new devices, and new kinds of workflows to build new businesses and new industries even. Mm-hmm. And so we're very focused on that. We, we try to find, uh, and we're very focused on you know, B2B in general and mm-hmm. B2B SaaS. We try to find the entrepreneurs that are thinking about how do you reinvent an industry? How do you reinvent a business? How do you solve a problem that couldn't be solved any other way than when you now bring a new kind of distributed architecture to it? with new kinds of resources that can be accessed, with new kinds of ways to gather the information that solves the problem in a very de- definitive way using many instances, AI, ML, et cetera. Yeah. So we're very excited about that. I think the, the great news about it is there are so many great things going on in Boston, whether yeah. it's you know, in our universities like Harvard and MIT and Northeastern and Babson and so forth, where entrepreneurs are, are realizing that. And I think you're gonna see pretty much every application area reinvented Mm-hmm. with AI and ML at the core of it, as well as all the infrastructure that needs to support that being completely reinvented to, to enable this distributed world. Yeah. So I know we're up on time at five. I can go a little longer, but how are you on time? I, I thought you got a cool round. Supposed to be no, no worries. So last, last question is I want to, is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to share with the community? Um, just cover? a big thank you. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how, rewarding it is to be in Boston. When we started, we said we had a goal of, you know, let's create 50 or 60 core members within Fund One. Right. To have, you know, over 800 that are sort of actively engaged and registered and so forth. And, you know, 1,340 or whatever it is that have engaged this year on, in our various different events and workshops and things. It's just mind blowing. And yeah. uh, it, it could be as big as we probably wanted it to be because people are so receptive to it. So our biggest challenge is curation. Yeah. But no, the, the two words are thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you yeah, for, for being here with me today. Yeah, thanks for giving me a Thanks, Michael. Yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it. And cheers, Boston. Yeah, thanks, Boston. <laughs>